Because Peter, in verse 12, which is our verse today, warns us to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And that is what we'll be considering. But first, let us read uh, verses 9 through 25. Starting at 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it to you when you sin and are beaten for it if you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we do come together to consider this passage about keeping our conduct among the Gentiles pure, that they might glorify you, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to think about our own lives, think about the lives of those we look up to, and think how we may be looked at and how we should better live our lives for your kingdom, for your glory, for our testimony. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we are really continuing last week. Verse 11 urged us to live a holy life, abstaining from sin as sojourners and exiles here. And then he moves on to this week's message. Be subject, or keep our conduct honorable before the Gentiles. 
Now, his thinking is we're, we're living our lives among the Gentiles, and there's a reason for that, that God has called us to live that way, to be amongst them. The, the Gentiles here does not just mean the non-Jew, it means the unbelievers. Right? He's separating the Gentiles from the Jews as we would separate um, the church, the visible church, from those outside of it. And by visible church, I mean believing churches. I'm not talking about all the cults and sects and other things. Uh, and so the distinction here is we as believers are living amongst really the unbelievers. He is not calling for us, and nobody in the Bible ever calls for us to go off and form a monastery and live in it or to have a closed community with walls around it and live separate from the world. Now, that, that's happened throughout history, but it's not God's calling. We are to live amongst the, the, the Gentiles and do the work amongst them that he has given us to do. And so his assumption here is that we are in the world. We are surrounded by the unbelievers. They all see us. And that's important to remember that they do see us. You know, we have children and we try to raise them right and train them in the way they should go. But what happens? You know, they know all about us. And we can't get away with saying, do what I say, not what I do. Because they see. And the world also, like the child, sees. They know our sin. They know what we've done. And that's what they remember. But we're to live our lives as witnesses amongst them. Live a holy life amongst them is what Peter is calling us to here. Because uh, this is really part of the mission God has entrusted to his people. You know, we are royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we are to live that way. This is part of, really, the Great Commission. Matthew 28:18 and following, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You know, go and make disciples. Making disciples means letting them know of Christ and of what God has called us to, to call them to re repent of their sins and turn to, turn to God in obedience. And uh, it's a small part of that, but part of that is the witness of the Christian church. You know, if people look at Christians and say, man, I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to be like them then it's not helpful. Right? We're, not, we're destroying the testimony. We're inhibiting, really, the, the commission to make disciples. They don't want to be the disciple of somebody who's reprehensible or undesirable. And like children, they watch everything we do. This is, though, our, our purpose, living amongst them as a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation. Uh, Paul calls this work that we are to do amongst them the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling men to God. Remember, all men are estranged from God from the Garden of Eden. Adam sinned, and before he sinned, he walked with God, and he spoke with God, and he looked upon God. And after he sinned, he was cast out of the Garden, could no longer walk with God. And we have all been living in that place as enemies, of God, not able to approach him. 
and he is calling us through Christ to be reconciled to him. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. We don't regard anyone according to the flesh regarding Jew or Gentile, but he says, once we regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we no longer regard him that way. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Uh, What that's all saying is, not just for the Jews, but the Gentiles also, the whole world, has the opportunity now to be reconciled. We're being called to be reconciled with God. And he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. That's what Peter is talking about here when he says to keep our conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. That's part of it. That God is making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, Paul says. For our sake you made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So anyway, that ministry of reconciliation is being made, is Christ making, or God making his appeal through us. And that is what Peter has in mind here, that appeal that is being made through us, at least part of it. Uh, Remember also, though, that this is the work God has given us. He didn't appoint royal priesthood and have no responsibility. We have a responsibility. Not everybody necessarily is called to go out and do street corner evangelism. Not everybody is called to preach. Not everybody has those abilities. But we all have the ability to show Christ in our life. You know, we, we, we show ourselves as the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And when they see that, they know. You know, a Christian should appear different than the world. We are not traveling incognito. Uh, I know some, some foreigners that go overseas and they act just like the locals, dress like the locals, adopt the speech patterns of the locals. They don't want to stand out. But the Christian does stand out because our country is heaven. Our kingdom is heaven and our our life is to be lived like Christ did. And we are to shine that light that everybody sees. We don't put the lamp under a basket. We put it on its stand so that the world is enlightened. Jesus, you'll remember, talks about the kingdom of heaven and the last judgment in Matthew 25, and I don't want to read the whole passage, but he talks about how it's like a man going on a journey and just trusts his servants with his property, giving one five talents, one two, another one, each according to their ability. Well, this is one of the talents that we have is the responsibilities we have is to be a witness for Christ. Not everybody is going to win thousands of souls. Not everybody is going to be able to explain the gospel to somebody who doesn't understand. But they're able to explain their hope. They're able to show 
at the very least, that their life is different from the world. No, I am not going to help you break the law. No, I am not going to cover for your immorality. No, I am not like Joseph. I am not going to sleep with you. We're going to do what's right. And everybody will see he does that because of Christ. At least that's the goal. We do stumble. We all know that we stumble. We read about it in the news as the press is delighted when Christians stumble. And indeed, at times they speak all kinds of evil against us that we haven't done as slander. But when we do stumble, it's a terrible thing for the kingdom. Now, we were talking about Rabbi Zacharias earlier. In Ezekiel 36, verse 16 and following, he says, The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. The ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols which they had defiled it with. I scattered them amongst the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. The people of Israel were not living for Christ. They were not living for God. They were not living a testimony worthy of God's people. And so wherever they went, they profaned his name. And the people said of them, of the Jews, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out of his land. God says, my concern was for my holy name, which the house of Israel was profaning among the nations in which, to which they came. God's wrath was upon them because his name was being profaned amongst the Gentiles. Well, how was it being profaned? Because they worshipped idols, they were immoral, they were killing people for profit, for money. Oppression had become, repeatedly through Israel's history, had become a major problem. Those who had power used their power to get rich off of those who had no power. But he says they they profaned his name through their deeds, through their lives, through their actions. We need to be a better witness in Israel and a better witness than many Christian ministers have been over the years and better than many Christian people have been. We need to be a proper witness for him by keeping our honorable conduct, especially amongst those outside the church. And of course, that they may see it. We hide our lamp under our basket. Nobody's going to see it. It's on its stand. They need to be able to see. Now, we're not going to talk about what our holy conduct should be. We've talked about that many times in the past. The Bible is really overflowing with examples and overflowing with explanations. It's turn away from sin and turn to Christ and do what God says in his word. Stop the sinning. Repent. Endeavor after a new obedience every time you repent. That his name might be glorified and that we might actually live lives worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel. 
to live our new life for God. Remember Paul says in Romans 6, 6 to 11, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing and that, that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So we also must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Uh, Point being that we should be living our life for God because we have died to this world. We have died to sin. We've died to all the things that we used to love. And we have been raised in Christ and live now for God. For his kingdom. Now, we understand that first and foremost, this is, this is a heart matter. Right? Jesus said in Mark 7, 20 and following, Whatever comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And so our testimony is getting rid of all of those things, but all of those things are coming from our heart. So the place we need to start, of course, would be our heart. It's impossible for a disordered or neglected heart to produce that well-ordered Christian conversation, as the the old writing is, the the way of life, the te- really the testimony, I'll call it, of our life. If people are to look back on our life after they've looked on our hard drive, after they've looked in our closet, you know, what have we lived? Who are we? That is what we're talking about here, living that, that, that testimony. And we're not going to be able to do that if our heart is neglected. Remember, out of a Out of the good treasure in his heart, a good person produces good. And an evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke 6, 45. Uh, all, All of this starts really with what our heart is fixed on. What do we think about when nobody is around? What do we think about when we're bored? You know, what are we focusing on when we're frustrated? When we're struggling? Or when we're happy. You know, what is, come, what is in our heart that's driving these things? That is what really will determine what comes out of us. That the world will see, that the Gentiles will see. We're here discussing keeping our conduct pure amongst the Gentiles. It's what comes out of our heart that they can tell, that they can find, that they can see is what they will judge us by and what they will judge God by. And so we're told in Proverbs 4.23 to keep our heart with all vigilance for from it flow, flow the springs of life. Everything that we are really is coming from out of our hearts. Of course, in, in the context here, it's not the heart that's the focus, but what people see coming out of the heart that's the focus. Uh, it's not just the internal holiness. It starts there. But it's how we treat others, how we live our lives 
how we obey God, how we are seen for our, our love for God, uh, especially seen by the Gentiles, the unbelievers. Uh, this quickly becomes one of the hardest things in the Bible to live for others. And not just living a holy life for God, for his kingdom, for his glory. But now we're taking it a step further in this passage. We're really living a life for the Gentiles' benefit, for the unbelievers' benefit. We're looking to see them glorify God. Why do I say this is especially hard and difficult? Well, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5? Starting at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Can you rejoice when you're slandered publicly? Rejoice and be glad for great is your, your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And we are going to be persecuted and we should rejoice in that because that is how the godless treat God and his people. And that is how they have always done it. And there is a great reward for us in that. We are to live our lives really as imitators of Christ. He came, he saved us. Yes, that's part of his mission. But what was the rest of his mission? To show us what a godly life should look like. To show us how we should live. We should remember both his teaching and his life. Now, continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount, starting Matthew 5, verse 38. Says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right, that's justice. Any, pain, any injury you cause should be caused back to you. Anything you steal should be given back. Well, what does he say? Do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Roman law said that a Roman citizen soldier could ask a non-citizen to carry his baggage for a mile. Beyond that, he was making him a slave and it wasn't allowed. But they could literally, when they got off the boat, grab you and say, carry my stuff. And that's what he's talking about. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. A Jewish saying, not a Bible saying. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You must therefore be perfect as your Father, Heavenly Father, is per perfect. Now, interesting command by Jesus, but what does it mean? How do we understand this? How do we interpret this? 
Well, we looked at Philippians 2, 5 through 8 before. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How do we link these two together? Well, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, Romans 5.10. How are we to treat our enemies? As Christ treated us. We are to look for that opportunity to share the gospel, yes. We are to show them a life of one who says, I have Christ. The things of the world are not important to me. My pride myself, my glory, my kingdom. You know, those are the things of the old self. The things of the new self are God, his kingdom, his glory, his service. How do we serve him as Christ served us? It's really hard because that's not what we want. Nobody wants to be persecuted. Nobody wants to have their things taken away. Nobody wants to be slapped on the face. Nobody wants to be treated wrong. I have rights. So did Christ. He had a right to our worship. He had a right to his throne in heaven. He had a right to be served by holy angels. He set all that aside and came to earth and lived as a servant. The life we live now, we have died to this world. We must live to Christ. That is what he is calling us to do. To set aside the desires of this world, the pride of life, and focus our hearts on his kingdom and his glory. It's a very hard thing for us to do. Not just to live our lives holy before God, but to live our lives holy before God as Christ lived his life. And this is really where the rubber meets the road. Can we truly follow Christ? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9.23 Now that is the cross we take up to live for Christ, to die to this world, to die to sin. We're called to live as Christ has lived. And to live right in front of all of the unbelievers for their benefit, not for our own. Keeping the end in mind, even though they speak evil of you, they may glorify God. We know that Peter does not say, if they speak evil of you, as if some small quantity of people will be persecuted. Uh, we've read in Second Timothy 3, 12 and 13 many times, all who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The more they see us, the more they see Christ in us, the more they see the glory of God being shown to them, the more they see their own sin, the more they see their own future, the more convinced they are of their destiny is eternity in hell. And the more they will hate us. All who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors go from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. Now that is what we are facing. We have this persecution coming. 
And it's worse. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 16, the first four verses? I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, this is the key. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But but as I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So think about that, though. They will persecute you thinking they're doing right, even right before God. Not just unbelievers, but the the churches, the false churches, and sometimes even Christians. Because you stand by the Bible, they may think, oh, you're evil. God wants people to be happy in love. Why can't a homosexual couple be happy in love? You're evil for speaking that way. Why, you know, why should an unwanted child be born? You're evil for that. Why do you insist on these things the Bible says? You know, why can women not be pastors? You're, you're evil for that. We, we hear this in the church, but outside the church, everything we believe is really the opposite of what men want. I've shared my testimony before, being an atheist. I became a Christian. I'm listening to the Bible, and I remember one time I was driving from Cincinnati down to Old Man's Cave to go spelunking. And I'm listening to the Bible in the car on cassettes. And at one point I just, you know, God, everything I know is wrong. Uh, because it was true. Uh, the more I heard the Bible, the more convinced I became everything that was the basis of my life as an atheist before Christ was not just confused, but was opposite, in opposition to God in opposition to what he said. And they see this in us when they see us living our lives rightly. And even if we live as a hypocrite, secretly doing evil, you know, if we're testifying about good, they hear that testimony. They know their judgment. And yes, they may delight and mock and ridicule because we've done the same things we say are sin. But they know they deserve hell. And so they persecute. They speak evil. Uh, this is becoming a problem more and more in, in our society today where God's word is considered primitive, provincial, evil, even hate speech. You, know, you can now be arrested in Canada for saying that uh, homosexuality is sin. They haven't arrested anybody yet, but they've got it on the books so that they can call that hate speech. And I remember an interview. They were trying to force a pastor to quote a passage in the Old Testament that said in Israel, under the theocratic kingdom, homosexuals were to be put to death so that they could accuse him of hate speech and being, you know, desiring murder. Uh, For the record, homosexuality is a serious sin, just like every other sin. And putting people to death in the Old Testament theocratic kingdom was because God was their their king, their ruler. It's not something we are doing today don't want you to be confused, but they they think good is evil and evil is good, and they think what we do, what we say, what we believe in Scripture is evil. Evil, not, not just good and they want evil, but evil and they want good. 
Uh, I remember witnessing to my dad after I became a Christian. He was a Sunday school teacher and a chaplain in the military during the Vietnam War time. And I was sharing with him how, you know, forgiveness of sins was such a wonderful thing. And he became furious and said, your God is a God of hate. And I couldn't figure out where this was coming from. And my, my father was, you know, class A personality, very explosive. So that was the end of the day for us. I went back to the hotel. But he was saying that because he had many sins that he loved. And God, he knew the Bible because he had been a Sunday school teacher. He had been a chaplain in the military. He knew enough of the Bible to know that what he loved was called sin in the Bible, that God hated it. And so to him, God, the God of the Bible was a God of hate. That is where the world is. And that is what drives the persecution. But guess what? That is also what should drive us to be that light for them so they can see. You know, they don't want to come into the light because their wicked deeds will be seen. But when God touches their heart, when God changes their heart, when God takes out that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, you know, we are there as part of the witness to them. I shared in my testimony, it took months from the time I started wanting to go to church looking for something until I found a church that could share the gospel. There's a time people will learn. They're looking for something. What do they see? They see a difference in people's lives. I ended up talking to somebody who had a very different life. Scary. He went to church in the middle of the week. I mean, he's a crazy guy. Uh, But I knew he was very different. And once I worked up the courage, I asked him. And he brought me to a church where the gospel was shared. He had a testimony, not just of trying to share the gospel, but of living a very different life from everybody else. And that is what we're talking about here, being called to live that very different life from everybody else. That life that is glorifying God, the life that is showing Christ in our life, the life that is an imitation of Christ's life. As much as we are able to do that as men. These things, though, this persecution is painful. In Matthew 10, 21 through 23, we read, Jesus says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child and children their parents and will have them put to death. You will be hated for all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Brother will hand over brother, parents their children, children their parents. That is what he says the future of Christianity is. As we are saved... And we are a testimony and a light, and they see their sins exposed by our light, by our life. Because we are different, they will seek to destroy us. They will seek to remove that pain in their life. The pain of knowing hell is waiting for them. It's a sad state of affairs, and it's hurtful to us. It's hurtful to our lives. It's hurtful to our success. It's hurtful to our happiness. 
but it is what God has called us to do. Paul in Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering is part of the Christian life. It is part of what we are called to. And our testimony when we suffer is one of the big things that shows the difference between us and the world. When the world, somebody in the world is threatened, they threaten back. When somebody in the world is slandered, they rage back. But Christ didn't. He says, be a witness, be a testimony to them. Show them that they're wrong. And if we persevere to the end, Matthew 19, 29, everyone who's left houses and brothers, sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You know, we have that great promise of a reward and we should be focused on doing what is right before God. What is man's chief end? What is man's great purpose? Question number one in the Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, if we are glorifying God, we have that great reward in heaven, a hundredfold, we're promised, for anything we may give up in this life for him. Let us be happy with that. Of course, we're doing all this, as I said, for a purpose. The purpose is not our reward in heaven, quite honestly. The perp- that's a side effect of doing what's right. Our purpose is that they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, what is the day of visitation? Uh, some people take this to mean the final judgment, when Christ returns and judges the world. Others, John Calvin being one of them, takes it as the day of salvation, when God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Uh, I think they're both right. Visitation is when God comes to man, and both of those are times when God will come to man. I don't think he's limiting to one or the other. If you think in the context, how is God glorified? Well, he's glorified in salvation because the person will believe and trust in God. Trust in God's salvation. And we we bring him glory when somebody is saved because, especially one of our persecutors, because we're, we're living as Christ has lived. Remember, we'll be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. You know, we are becoming more like him. We are living like him. We are leading people then naturally to him by who we are. We show Christ in his love, his work in our life, and if necessary, even in our death. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. You know, we live the life that Christ lived. And when we read the Gospels and we think about his life, we should really be thinking about, you know, how do I live as Christ has commanded me to? Not live as him as in, you know, being God, we're not God, but living the life that he demonstrates, one of suffering, one of sacrifice, one of putting others first, one of service. Why? 
for God's kingdom, for God's glory. We glorify him in salvation by being ambassadors, by bringing that message of reconciliation to people, not just those who are good to us and kind to us and who we like. Oh, I like that person. I'd like to recruit them. Uh, Nobody ever said that of me (laughs) as an atheist, Uh, but by bringing the message to those who need it in the hope that God will bless the message, but also in showing them their life. I, I, before I started going to church, I was becoming more and more depressed because I saw my life was not good. I started to believe myself to be evil, to be foolish, to be wicked. And how do you come to that conclusion? Was I different than the people around me? Well, no, I was the same as 85, 90% of them. (laughs) By the few who are living a different life. And so we glorify God by being that ambassador, by being that light to the world, by being that salt to the earth. Even if we don't do it in words, just our existence can bring God glory. But also, I think we really do bring God glory at the final judgment with the Gentiles, with the unbelievers. Uh, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 12:33 and following. He says, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make it bad, its tree, fruit will be bad. The tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person... Out of his good treasure brings forth things. The evil out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words will you be justified, and by your words will you be condemned. In our passage today, he said, they speak evil. They speak against you as evildoers. The idea being that you are not evildoers. You are doing what is right and holy before God. And on the day of judgment, they will be called to give an account for that. You saw that Christian's life. You saw their testimony. You saw their goodness and their holiness and their righteousness. You called it evil. If they were lying, you're a liar. Confess God's judgment, justice. If you really thought evil was good and good was evil, now you see just how wrong your wretched heart was. And either way, every knee shall bow. And everyone will glorify God on that day that he visits us. And so both, you know, we hope we're glorifying God in the day of salvation, but also we are glorifying him in the day of judgment by living that life, by living as strangers and pilgrims in this world. As I was working on this message, I was remembering going to boot camp when I was 17, joined the army. It was brutal. It was horrible. It was suffering every day. Um, I became physically mature probably in my mid-20s. I mean, I finished growing muscles and bones and size. So I was still, at 17, a child. I think I, I had a 38 jacket in those days. By the time I graduated from college, I was wearing a 46 jacket, same pant size. You know, I... So it was really hard for me, being immature, physically immature. But you think about that. Why was I doing it? Why was I suffering through that? Well, 
I was going to be in the military. I would have income once a month. I would go to drills. I would have money for college. It was accomplishing what I wanted in life. Not that, but the future. And that's really what our life in this world is. You know, what are we doing in this world? Storing up treasure in heaven, not living for the pleasures that are fleeting and passing. And the older we get, the more we realize those pleasures are fleeting. But the more we can think about the treasure we should be storing up in heaven. It's never too late to invest in eternity. We need to die for self and to live for Christ and for his kingdom. And be conscious of the fact that everything we say, everything we do, all of our life, it is being observed, not just by God, but by the people around us. And we want to be salt and light. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have called us out of darkness into light, out of the horrors of the world into the kingdom of your Son, and that you have promised us an eternal reward, an eternity with you, an inheritance that does not fade or perish or corrupt or get stolen, but that is protected and preserved by you. And teach us, Lord, to live our lives as living sacrifices, holy, glorifying you, conscience of the wicked around us, the godless around us who need the truth, who need to see the light. And we ask that you would give us the strength we need to live that way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.